Let's go ahead and turn to First Kings. We'll be in chapter seven. Title of this is the Pillars of God. We're going to be in verse fifteen because that's as far as we got. It opens with what are subtitled the Bronze Pillars. It says, for the temple. So this is where we get to see the things that were necessary for the act of worship to progressively lead people and ultimately by one representative, the high priest into the Holy of Holies to commence at least once a year with the decree that God had forgiven the nation. To that point, throughout the year, there were sacrifices that would be made. The approach to the Temple Mount would be rather extravagant. It had, obviously, walls around it and protocols of entering into it. Some would not be permitted to enter any further than where lines of demarcation would be because that was the area where the priests would be serving. The sacrifices that the people would bring would be taken care of outside of that. Once the sacrifice had been made, confession had been as well made, then the priests performed their duties within that temple area. This is speaking of the temple proper, actually the structure in which in the inwardmost holy area, the priests and Levites would be doing their work before the Lord, representing him. When they would come in to basically the inner courtyard, which is where the people in common could be at, and the outer courtyard, which is where the larger community would be, so you had outer, inner. One of the first things that would be seen, and that could be seen because there would be a wafting of smoke off of an altar that was for the sacrificial animal, and this would be tended. That would be one of the first things that would be noted if you entered into the inner court. Beyond that, and we're not going to be there today, was a huge giant basin. It was a laver filled with, I think, approximately 12,000 gallons of water. We saw some concepts of this in Israel when we visited. It had spigots on it, and with it were the ceremonial washings, both of those serving and also utilized for the rinsing and washing of the animals that had been sacrificed and were being prepared for ultimately as the burnt offering. When you moved beyond that and this huge structure, which we'll look at later next week, you would move towards the temple proper and what the scriptures tell us as we'll get into it were these huge columns. 
The scriptures will give it to us in cubits, 18 inches, but they were massive. Something like up to at least the column itself before the ornate objects on top, which will be identified as capitals on each one, approximately 27 feet. So once we look into what it's crowned with, the capitals, very ornately designed artwork, which we will also discover has a picture to it. This was massive. And the reason that it's important is because it does have with it clear identification of the Lord. Those who would be entering into the temple proper would have to pass these two paired up huge columns, some 35 feet in height, 19 feet in circumference. They were massive. And everyone understood that a name of God was identifying each one of them. We'll look at that. One of the things that I want to as well anchor you in are some passages from the Psalms and some other areas that will help us to understand the significance of them. Let's go ahead and read right now where we're at. And that is beginning as soon as I pick up my paper. And he cast two pillars of bronze. It continues to say that each one 18 cubits high and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Those were the details that I just gave you. Now we know that the architect of this ultimately in vision was David and Solomon at the same time seems to have had some creative contribution as well. David was very clear on the plans that God had given to him, but it does seem that Solomon had as well an opportunity to be creative. That's what has been suggested. So again, in 1 Kings chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, we have an idea of the massive structures. They would be in our vernacular twins of each other, and yet with personality unique to what they were standing for. We see that in verse 16, in this manufacturing of them, and having been told it was bronze, it's important to know that that is historically and spiritually a judgment metal. It's not gold, it's not silver, though we know that fire is used to refine both of them. This is something that is both in its form, highly polished, the laver would be, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, the priests could actually look into it reflectively. It was a judgment basin and these, not colonnades, which is the plural of a column, a series of them, would be in a judgment metal. God being both a judge and rendering a judgment. 
as what this would represent being just in the forefront of what would be called in the scriptures the vestibule, that kind of area where in the rest of duties or in the exchange of officers taking care of the duties, they could position themselves. But it's interesting that these are massive in what they represent. Very likely, even though we see and know that that particular metal can fade, it can lose some of its spectacular qualities under the elements. It's something very likely that was tended, polished, kept up, which is an important insight because the things of God are as well on his heart to be kept polished, to stay vertical. These were huge, massive, vertical pillars. It would take much effort to topple them. They weren't going away by a windstorm. You wouldn't bump into it and go, ooh, wow, it's falling. And that's an important understanding too is that it's a hard work for men to take down the works of God when he is truly the one that has put it in place. Many people feel that even today, as this could be pictured, that the church is taking its bumps, it is being attacked, and it's going to fall. But the Lord made it very clear that that would not be until an appointed time in which the church literally is taken out, taken up. When the priests would look at this as they entered in, they would ultimately have to look up. That's how captivating it was. I think for the church, we also need to know that as we approach the things of God and the place ultimately where we're at right now, we look up. There's a lot of news out today that is kind of compelling us to look down and to feel sorrowful and lose our hope. But God is the one that rekindles that. And he does so by faith that we exercise coming into a place like this. Oh, some may say this isn't so spectacular. It's a shopping center. It's a room within a shopping center, a couple of them. But I think that's where faith has to be exercised as well. To me, it's a beautiful habitation. It's a wonderful, inviting, and welcoming place to be. When this approach was made, they were in awe and should have been because if there was an error on the parts of those who were in charge in this case, then their lives literally were at risk. And one of the things that we find in the scriptures right now and pictured in this element of a bronze pillar is the significance of it. Because it's not always about us. It's not really about the errors that we can commit and very often fumble through that we say, oh my goodness, I am judged. I've got only moments before God sends down a lightning bolt. 
Do you remember that last week when I was teaching, we were talking about this spirit? And I think that as that title was given last week, it was concerning literally the breath in the teaching, the spirit of God as breath. And there was a time that as I was teaching, I literally became breathless. I don't know how it happened. I just know that I lost my title and residual air and I, I told people on Thursday, that's what I felt like. And I had a gasp, I went, <sighs> and I breathed again. <laughs> and no, I don't believe it was a judgment of God. Now it could have been uh, for the sake of those watching, you know, kind of uh, a drama, but I found it to be interesting that as I was teaching on it, God allowed me to draw breath to continue on. Didn't feel like my heart was going out, didn't feel like my brain was going, you know, into a stroke. I just, in my teaching, lost my breath. To some degree, when these men came to serve and the people could see that from the outside, it was really a breathless moment. That's what it was to do, was to bring awe and wonder into the hearts of the believers who were there worshiping the one and true God. Well, it's massive. Verse 16 declares that then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits and the height of the other capital was five cubits. That's where the term twin came from that I used. They were identical. Only the names will be changed. The personalities represented in these particular massive columns that give us an idea of both hope and strength and awe in God. So when you're picturing these columns of brass, and when you know that the top of the column now is holding what is called a capital, it's another kind of artwork. We're going to see that there's a linkage between both the capital and the column, and what appears to either be on top of the capital or actually one with the capital. And probably I would say for understanding, maybe it's best to say the all three were one. The column, the capital, and what was on top of the capital that is revealed at the closing verse. It's fascinating. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other. Again, identical in how they were constructed. So as you visualize this at what would be the pinnacle of, I think perhaps best described as an orb, more of a rounded brass object on the top, they were formed, we have chains that are draped. There are links, and there's seven of them that go all the way around. What's the significance of the chains that were used? Very likely what it's saying is that 
we are linked with God. God is linked with us. The number seven is the number of both completion and perfection, one of several used in the scriptures to help us numerically understand that God is a very extraordinary designer and mathematician. He's a civil engineer of all engineers. And so that was to remind them that as a nation, they were linked with God for the purpose of perfecting them, not perfecting God. He's perfect. He's a perfect designer. At times, we sometimes question by culture's charges, what's the validity of the church today? Well, it's because we're linked with God. That's the answer that we should give. Oh, we'll prove it. Well, faith doesn't require me to prove it. Faith requires me to believe it. We're a family. As those links were knitted together in what would be maybe a description of mail, chain mail, kind of perhaps ornamental. It may have even looked somewhat like a wreath that was dropping in its draping over this capital that we very often say, I'm alone. And God says, no, you're not. Look around. You're part of a family. You're linked together in faith. And it's not simply faith. It is actually the belief that God has given you gift, the gift of faith, and he's given you a body of believers linked with you in this one faith. It continues to give us this description here. And it says that in this, verse 17, he made a lattice work with the wreaths of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital, and seven for the other capital. He made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top, and thus he did for the other capital. So we have an interesting design addition here, and it's pomegranates. It's actually a very spiritual fruit. Most of us enjoy pomegranates. Most of us have enjoyed companies that actually break the shell, scoop out the seeds, put it in a package, and we can tear into it and eat as patience would allow us. As well, we enjoy pomegranate juice because it's already been done for us. No mess. If you were ever in remembrance of being handed a pomegranate as a kid, having your mom cut it open and burying your face in it, chances are your t-shirt was ruined and your face was stained for about a week. It's a very marking fruit. It's actually what we would consider almost blood red. There's an identity there. One in the sacrifices that must take place, and that was that everyone was in charge of identifying with a sacrifice that would render that particular inspected, perfected sacrifice dead. The person that was presenting that sacrifice would realize that he's linked with ultimately the giving of that life identifying with his sin. For without the remission, 
if you would, for without the rendering or the sacrifice, there can be no remission of sin. And so that was what the animal sacrificial system was about. And God was picturing ultimately what he would do one day on behalf of his nation and all the world in giving his son. So it's a fascinating picture there. The Jews believed, those that were the scholars, that the pomegranate was a sacred fruit. I don't know when they decided to look into that, except it was a godly, inspired fruit that would be used in this particular columns. And they have suggested that there are 613 seeds within a pomegranate, and the 613 seeds, as they have made at least their best uh, inquiry, relates to the laws of God. They believe some 613, not simply the Ten Commandments, but additional ones found in both laws of food and conduct and these kinds of things that were ceremonial. And so Solomon had those put in ornamentation. It says in rows, it indicates that there's 200. I'm not sure of the significance there. But this is becoming a very ornate, a very specific kind of design. And it may be that the Lord is simply saying, and through Solomon, the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. We know this, that Jesus was found to be the perfection of both the law and the prophets. And in this, it may be a picture. Perfection in the seven males of draping linkage, the pomegranates concerning the law of God, what basically we look into today, which also is paired up with the law of the Spirit. It's how we are able to have governance by God with Him in this temple. And it's important to know that at times we may not have our Bible with us, but what does God do? He uses what we do have in our hearts what we have read with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, and it's by conviction. As he continues to describe this, these capitals, these orbs that are on top of these columns, the description of their dimensions, their positioning, it says in the hall, we're in the shape, and notice this, this is what I want to be able to focus on additionally in this artwork. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of both lilies, four cubits. So what you need to see right now is that this seems to be the crowning ornamentation. If you look at pictures of what is historically most identified in the Middle Eastern country, what Israel would have been familiar with, what Solomon would have been familiar with, it was called the lily of the valley. And the lily of the valley looks a bit different than the lily that we see today, most notably 
on the resurrection day. We see when we bring in lilies, this large trumpet, but the Middle Eastern lily of the valley is actually a clustering of very tender, delicate flowers, usually white. They can have multiple colors in them, but they're generally white. And they're clustered very symmetrically on a stem. Ours that we bring in usually here are trumpets that drape out and kind of look up. And the lily of the valley that Solomon would have been putting on this colonnade or these two columns would have been bulbous, like what we were finding here, and then open. And it's a very lovely flower. It looks almost like a diadem or a crown. That's what it looks like. The Easter lily common to us looks like a trumpet. The lily of the valley that very likely is being pictured here looks like a diadem, a crown. It's on the top. And I think the statement there is, is that there is one who is king of kings, lord of lords over all, central to the strength of this huge, massive structure. And when ultimately, that as the person that wears the diadem would also be judged, the king who crowns everything and who wears a crown ultimately would be judged, spoken of by this huge, massive bronze column. Very ornate, very special. It's not going to look like a trumpet. It looks like a diadem. This massive crown on both columns just before entering in. And so, as it moves on, the capitals and the two pillars also had the pomegranates above. They're just giving further details on this. By the convex surface, which was next to the network, and there were 200 such pomegranates in rows. On each of the capitals all around. And then verse 21. He set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the left and he called its name Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies. So the work of the pillars was finished. I like that last statement. Jesus would declare to his father as he was on a cross, it is finished. And he is the author and the finisher of our faith. In verses 15 through 22, it's just one of many beautiful, powerful pictures of God showing himself through design. God has shown himself through design by who you are today. 
what you may think about yourself is irrelevant. It's what God thinks about you that you must understand. One of the things with regard to this approach, and I do want to get to this, is if you'll look perhaps in your margin, it tells us what these names mean. And so in verse 21, where we're introduced to this, and I actually have a picture that kind of just helps me keep a focus on this. And then I want to talk about, it's not a typo, I want to talk to you about how these columns are positioned in their names. But the first one that was mentioned is Jacob. And it says with regard uh, to this name, I want to come back and capture it. It says, he set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jacob. Jacob means, as you look in your margins, God shall establish. Then it moves and says, he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. And that means in him is strength. Jacob, God shall establish. Boaz in him is strength. Jacob has been identified as on the left, and it says that Boaz is going to be, excuse me, on the right is Jacob and on the left is Boaz. If you look at this though, which you can't right now, but if you were looking straight on to the temple, it would actually be opposite of what is said. You would make the presumption that on your right is going to be Boaz and on your left is going to be Jacob. But Jacob is identified in the scriptures as on your right and Boaz on your left. The only way that that could happen is if you reverse from your entry and you're looking out. Then you would properly see that Jacob is on your right and Boaz is on your left. What I want to be able to share with you is that is something God wants us to understand. It's by entering in that those particular structures are seen in the order that they're presented. If you're just looking at the temple, yeah, that's massive. That's beautiful. Look at that. But you do not enter in to look out. They remain as you saw them in that order. Right or left, doesn't matter, left or right. God wants us to know that that order is important. And the only way that you can see order in your life, the only way that you're able to actually have clarity on what God's doing in your life and to actually have an in-the-spirit moment is to enter in. That's the picture. You've entered in today, here. This is a temple. You're a temple. You walked in. You took with you the residency that God says is his in your heart. And now when you look out, you see the proper order that he wants you to see. 
You may say, is that relevant? I think it is relevant because there are people that make the presumption that they're fine just looking upon the work, just being on the outside of entering in with God. What is it that terrifies people about coming into the work of God and living a life as a royal priesthood, as those who are disciples, those who are students of the word, those who are filled by the spirit to do that which is God's pleasure, which is what? It's not about work. Glad we have the coffee, glad we have the chairs. People that clean and do the things on the inside that are necessary, that's important. But it's actually about worshiping God in the theater that God has put his name. Jesus, when he died, the one in which this colonnade, these two, if I can, these twins, are speaking about him. The psalmist declares, and there's actually several that are credited, but I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 90, if you would. And we'll grab just a couple of scriptures before we close. But in Psalm 90, and we'll jump to... Verse 17, God shall establish, God shall establish, God shall establish. What does Jacob's name mean? God shall establish. He's on your right. Let the beauty of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. See, we look to establishments. Those are structures, organizations that give us a means by which either we are vocationally entreated or we are entertained. Provisions of a multitude of things that we want or need and the Lord says, you need me. I am Jacob, Jacob. I am the one. And notice this, that establishes everything that you do and your desires. One of the parallel passages that I find to be equally as encouraging to me is, I think, one of your favorite chapters too, books 27 one thing in verse 4, Psalm 27, verse 4, I've desired of the Lord that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Notice this, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. I love the imagery there, but the heart of David and being able to pen that. Moses is credited with the first psalm that we read, for he knew deeply that he needed the strength of the Lord. He wasn't the architect of this, but he was the one that could pen that passage of Scripture that really many of us need to cleave to. Oh, that I might be established. Great. Do so then. God's way. 
Allow him to establish you in the gifts that have been distributed to you by the Holy Spirit. Every person here has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to be a contributor to the work of God and doing it according to the ways of the Lord. Remember, many of us were. Weren't you content at some point in your life to just look at the church from a distance? I was. And I grew up in the church. Boaz was on my right. Jacob was on my left. Rich, enter in. Oh, Jacob's on my right. Boaz is on my left. What is the significance of that name? In him is strength. You can look up in Nehemiah 8.10, and it says this. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Wait a minute. On one side, God is he who establishes me, and on the other side, he's the one that tends the grief that I'm going through. How does he do that? Because the Lord is my strength. These pillars were symbols of strength, immovable. Have you been moved lately by politics? Have you been moved by the challenges that you have faced being a person that is vulnerable to tensions, temperaments, failures? I think it's a beautiful picture. Remember what crowns that particular orb, that capital, and that actually is very much linked to what we call the petals of an open flower, the lily, is the idea of a fragrance, a beautiful fragrance. Some botanists have said, actually, the fragrance of the lily is one which cannot be captured. It has to be manufactured. You get it only by the experience of having it, walking through it. Once it's nipped, it has only a season. And I know most of us would say, well, no, 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 the, I've got a fragrance. It's a lily fragrance. It's from Jerusalem. They squished it and bottled it. Perhaps. I'm saying that some botanists have said, perfumers, that it's actually an elusive fragrance. And it can only be obtained by it living. The Lord would say, the fragrance of me is on you, living for me. Apart from me, your manufactured fragrance. I have tried over the years to find my fragrance. I still can't find it unless I don't bathe. And then I'm going, ah, found my fragrance. It's not a pleasant one to be around. It compels me to bathe. It compels me, as we'll talk about next week, to hit that laver with 12,000 gallons of water. I haven't yet found, per se, the fragrance of men to do better for me than the fragrance of Jesus. And so this open petal speaks of both fertility in the spirit, the work that he does in making me new each and every day. 
and the fragrance, that awesome smell, that truly in faith we can both be, and as the scriptures declare, diffused, that others get not a whiff of our humanity, but a smell of the Lord's divinity. I just love that. So what we need to tell people to do is don't be so enthralled, enamored with what it looks like on the outside. How about coming in and seeing what God has said about himself? From the outside, you'll see it opposite of the way the Lord wants it revealed. From the inside, you'll see perfectly what he wants you to see. And I just appreciate that insight. I'm not going to get it at any time simply being on the outside. I get it when from the inside I look out. And I'm able to, when I leave and go out, do the things that are meaningful to the Lord. What if the Lord said to you, the most meaningful thing that I could ask of you to establish you in faith is just love me. Enjoy the challenge of living for me. Enjoy exercising the gifts that I have given to you as they're presented. As opportunity presents itself, enjoy distributing the gifts that I have given you that establish you as one of mine. I just love the imagery there. I think it's awesome. In Proverbs 16, 3, we're going to take a peek of that because it may be something that, again, is a directed promise to some of you. But I love this. Sometimes it's noted as a life verse. I appreciate it. But in Proverbs 16 and in verse 3, notice this discipline that we should have or that we're working towards simply says this, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. You have scattered thoughts today. Are you standing strong as that pillar, that pillar of bronze in which you will not say, I am being judged, but you're able to say, one greater than me has been judged on my behalf, that I am strong that the things that I get to enjoy are from him. They're not works that I'm trying to impress others of, nor am I trying to connect with God by how many things I can check off that I did well. But it says that my thoughts, as my works have been committed to him, are going to be established. I don't have to have a scattered mind I can have a mind that is laser straight and hits its target. We're running into times now in which we're not sure what to think. Have you seen that in culture lately? That people can't even decide on the simplicity of biology that we've all studied? What is happening? Well, there are people that are not entering in to the invitation of both being saved and seeing the world as God has presented it, fallen, needful of him, and most significantly, 
the draw of God that changes us from not wanting to tolerate anymore, but to be at his disposal. I just think that's an awesome picture there. These columns were named. They speak of the Lord in both its strength, the judgment that would be imposed upon him, that the judgment would pass from us, the fragrance of the Lord, the beauty of this place based on us being truly his heart's desire. He desires each and every one of us, both in the strength that he's given to us and the beauty as well that he manifests in us. We may not feel so beautiful. I know we wrestle at times with what defines us in that regard, but God doesn't wrestle with it at all. You know, I can put on a new shirt, and for a day, it works in making me feel a little bit better. But then I find that there are problems with that shirt, and it's usually related to me. I don't necessarily handle hamburgers too well, and so I wear them. I back into things, and I'm stained and can't even see it because I backed into it. I have things that claw and scratch at me, and so the fabric gets torn. And so simply in this presentation, I think it's a beautiful reminder of what God is at work doing. And I'd like you to keep some of those particular scriptures in your heart and even research them. I think they're awesome. I really do. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, notice this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Notice verse 5, Jacob and Boaz, Boaz and Jacob. Who do you see first? Who's on your right? Who's on your left? not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. The Lord's time to return is drawing nigh. That should be the message of the church. We need to have a sure and confident hope that things are summing up 